Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales and one of the presenters for Dragon Bites. This week we've got the first in a two-part series all about breastfeeding. Two of our Dragon Bites hosts, Tom Cromarty and Stacey Harris, are joined by two experts in the field of breastfeeding. First we have Dr Vicky Thomas, a consultant paediatrician at the Great North Hospital in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. And secondly, Ilana Levine, an ST6 based in the Thames Valley Deanery, who's currently out of programme doing some research. Anyway, let's get started. Right, well, hello. Uh, thanks for joining us. Um, we've got some fantastic guests here today to talk about um, breastfeeding and some initiatives that are going on in the UK at the moment. Um, if we could start just by getting some introductions, if that's okay. Um, we could start with you, Vicky. That'd be fantastic. Oh, hi. So I'm Vicky Thomas. I'm a consultant paediatrician at the Great North Children's Hospital, which is in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Um, I'm a scientific advisor to La Leche League, which is a breastfeeding support organisation. I sit on the scientific committee of the Lullaby Trust, supporting families and supporting research around sudden infant death syndrome. And I'm a trustee of First Steps Nutrition Trust. Wow. Um, and, and Alana? Hi, um, I'm Alana Levine. I am an SD6 level registrar. Um, in the Thames Valley, although I'm actually out of programme for research at the moment doing a PhD that's related to human milk in preterm babies, and that's with the National Perinatal Epidemiology Unit. Fantastic. Well, welcome. Welcome, both of you. Um, we've also got Stacey, one of the uh, Dragon Bites, well, founders on the call. Um, and so I think we could just kick it off just by talking about breastfeeding and, and really just going into some of the basics about why it's important, if that's okay. Um, yeah, so I think that um, first, before we even start, I think we need to acknowledge that um, talking about why breastfeeding is important can be difficult for some people to listen to. Um, and it can raise hackles because of the personal experiences that people who are listening to the podcast may have. Um, and so before we say anything, um, I think Vicky and I both definitely want to, to say that we don't see formula as anything evil. We don't see people who use formula as being bad parents. We completely understand the kind of psychological trauma that can happen when breastfeeding doesn't go as planned. Um, and our attitude is that we want to help people to breastfeed um, as much as they can and reduce that trauma of not being able to breastfeed when you wanted to, which I actually have experienced myself. Um, so that's kind of a little runner <laughs> before we start, because I, I think that when people are listening, it can really raise hackles to have people talking about why is breastfeeding important and what's the impact of breastfeeding. Um, I think the general public really see very little difference between formula and breast milk. I think everybody knows this phrase, breast is best, which actually nobody really likes and it's quite meaningless. Um, but because the UK is really a formula feeding society, most people are formula feeding even after, in the first month of life um, after birth. Um, then the general public sees that formula is fairly normal and that there isn't much biological difference between formula and breast milk. Whereas breast milk, of course, is this incredibly complex living fluid, which we can never really hope to even make something that's slightly similar to it um, when it doesn't come from a human breast. <laughs> um, it has thousands of different components. It has stem cells in it. it has, it's highly immunologically active. 
it has not only antibodies but lactoferrin and all kinds of substances we don't even have a name for yet <laughs> um, and it also has bacteria in it so it is um, a means of establishing the microbiome and a normal microbiome um, it changes over time so it changes according to the day it changes according to the weather it changes according to the sex of the baby it changes according to whether the baby is ill whether there's two children that are breastfeeding at the same time um, and it's not only nutrition which is what we tend to think about it in pediatrics um, it's also comfort, it's also part of parenting, it's also pain relief. So those are lots of the reasons why it is really important. Um, now, in a societal level, we kind of see it with a public health perspective. And I think that the key roles for human milk uh, in terms of health are infectious disease for, for babies and infants and children. Um, and people often think about that in relation to contaminated water as if it's a, it's a problem that we see in um, low and middle income countries that we would make up formula in a contaminated way and that's the problem. Um, but that's only part of the story because as I said, um, breast milk is such an immunologically active fluid um, that it has a really significant impact on infectious diseases. So things like gastroenteritis, otitis media. There's also the impact on SIDS, which I think is so obviously important that it's something that we should all know about that breastfeeding reduces the risk of SIDS um, although obviously it's a small absolute impact, it's, it's a very significant one. Um, but as on a public health perspective also, I think possibly the role in childhood obesity is something that really we should think about more. So if you're breastfed, you're less likely to be um, overweight and obese as a child. And then of course, as pediatricians, we don't often think about the mum side of things, um, but breastfeeding reduces the risk of breast cancer and also lots of other gynecological cancers and is linked to things like cardiovascular disease as well. And then there's the health economic impact that results from all of those things. So we could really save billions of pounds for the NHS and the general economy um, if we could just get everyone who wants to breastfeed to be able to breastfeed. Yeah, I, I think if you guys are in, if people are interested in going to the literature, which often gets bandied about a bit here, and interestingly, there's a lot of cherry picking of information, um, especially um, from from some groups who don't don't feel that breastfeeding is of use. Um, I, tend, I tend to direct people to the Lancet series published in 2016, um, which is a really useful summary. It's a huge literature review um, and really fascinating data there. And I think the other thing that we're not really talking about enough is that most families want to breastfeed. So many of us have had that experience of talking to a family where breastfeeding isn't going to plan. And many of us almost, I think, as professionals get a bit put off uh, breastfeeding because our initial experience of it as paediatricians is those skinny babies in the emergency department at 11pm with a weeping mum and that feeling of helplessness. Um, and I think what's really tempting to do is say, it's not that important, have some formula, off you go. That's that's often been the default, I think, in paediatrics. Um, it was mine, if I'm honest, before I had my own children. Um, I think I very much didn't understand the mechanics of breastfeeding. I didn't know how to help people who were having breastfeeding problems. And my default was very much to say, look, we're living in a wealthy country. We've got good access to formula. Have a bottle of formula and off you go. And it's only, I think, coming through the lens of personal experience that you realize that families don't want that as a solution families desperately want most of the time in my experience to be supported with successful breastfeeding um 
And we know that women whose breastfeeding doesn't work out have a significantly higher risk of postnatal depression. So th there's a lot of reasons why on a macro and micro level, it's an important thing for us to manage well as paediatricians. Yeah, I, I definitely um, have had that experience myself of, like you say, having um, mothers and parents who are struggling in the first few days or few weeks. And I find it hard to navigate the, um, you know, wanting to be supportive and also not wanting to um, try, try and force anything too much. Um, and so I find weighing up those arguments quite hard and, and definitely... I don't know if people often see it as the the easy way out or or something like that. Um, how how can as as we as as healthcare professionals then best support those 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 hard times in those first few weeks? So, I think the first thing I'm going to say is listen rather than talk. I think often we think we've got to say something or do something. But actually sitting with a family and hearing what's important to them and what they want is, I think, the number one priority and that guides you in how you can support them. The other thing is that most of us as paediatricians are not going to be breastfeeding experts. You know, to, to qualify as what's called um, an IBCLC, which is, is sort of the, the highest qualification in lactation, takes huge amounts of work. It's a separate exam. You have to do hundreds or thousands of year, of hours of practical uh, support for families. And no one, I think, is expecting a revolution in paediatrics where we're suddenly all going to be able to resolve people's lactation problems in a 30-minute consultation in the emergency department. But we do need to know the basics about normal baby behaviour and be able to support families with that. And I guess that's something we can talk a bit more about. And we also really need to know who knows more than us and what we don't know and how to signpost families. So um, most hospitals, most facilities will have an infant feeding team who will know infinitely more than most of us as frontline paediatricians about how to support breastfeeding. And there's also, it's also really important to um, know about the third sector organisations. So the National Breastfeeding Helpline, which is really well staffed by knowledgeable call takers and also has web chat functions. Um, the organisations which are opening up now to face-to-face -face groups that have been running um, Zoom and other online support all the way through the pandemic. You know, the National Breastfeeding Helpline calls went up 112% last year because that there was that need for families to get that support. So I think it's really important to say you might not know everything about breastfeeding and that is absolutely okay but find someone who does and signpost families to them. And if I can just come in there, I think that um, there's a group called the Parenting Science Gang, um, which is a group of parents doing science in combination with, with researchers. Um, and they did some qualitative work looking to see what mothers' experiences were with health professionals. Um, and they came out with a few recommendations. Um, and the first was, mothers' voices matter. The most effective breastfeeding support is listening, as Vicky said. Um, the second one was investigate common issues. So be aware that breastfeeding may be related to things like pain, nipple damage, prolonged feeding, that kind of thing. And also be aware that it may not be a breastfeeding issue. 
um, look for underlying causes. So they wanted people particularly to think about positioning and attachment to the breast. So the physical act of bringing the baby to the breast and how that impacts on the success of breastfeeding. Um, and to think about things like what is the milk transfer like and is there a tongue tie? And then the last point they wanted was know where to find information and make referrals that are appropriate in your local area. So I think that's all the things that Vicky's just said, but I wanted to bring in the voice of the parents from the Parenting Science Gang there. Fantastic. And I suppose um, just being aware of that as, as healthcare professionals of some of the basics and some of the areas of signposts too is going to be a really key factor in trying to address some of those concerns. Um, I, I definitely see, uh, you know, just listening and spending however long that takes, um, just trying to establish what the um, expectations and concerns are um, from the mother and the family. And I suppose um, a part of that is knowing what's normal and what's physiological and what's normal. Um, you know, a certain amount of, of weight loss is, you know, except when we'll come on to that later on and, and is expected. Um, and yeah, knowing knowing kind of those red flags and what is normal then helps you be a bit more confident in 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 giving that reassurance. Um, so I suppose if we could move on to talking about what what normal breastfeeding looks like, if there is a normal, <laughs> one of the things I always end up trying to have a conversation with parents and saying that there's always a, just an individual relationship between that newborn and that mother, um, and the, it's difficult to know what normal is. Is is that is that how you kind of go about the conversation? Ilana's going to tell us a bit about volumes of milk, but I think um, what I would say is just a few things around trust in the human body. You know, as, as paediatricians, we often think that everything's a bit broken because we're used to solving problems, but breastfeeding is a, is a physiological function. And for most families, if we don't mess about with it, it actually can work really well. Um, night waking that is not a sign of a problem um and night waking through the whole first year of life and dare i say it second and third <laughs> year of life uh is not a sign that there's anything going wrong with your breastfeeding or your child um frequent feeding so we often quote this eight to twelve eight to twelve is the bare minimum of breastfeeds that we're looking at in a 24-hour period and professor amy brown who i've done some work with actually looked at breastfeeding frequency over the first six to twelve months and you know some of those babies as reported by their parents were breastfeeding up to 20 times in a 24-hour period um so sort of encouraging families to feed the baby um, respond to what the baby needs, that true responsive feeding, and be aware of that, um, I think is where I would start off. But Ilana's got some really good data as well about volumes of milk. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, we're used to often some some medical model of volume feeding plans in the early period and numbers in the later period that are relating to hydration, where if babies are in hospital, and you kind of lose sight of what is actually normal for a healthy baby who's breastfeeding without interference. Um, and there, obviously, it's difficult to note that as well. <laughs> but there are various ways of, of assessing um, the volume of milk that babies are taking. In the first few days of life, that's most accurately done by test weighing. So you weigh the baby on a very accurate scale before every single feed and then immediately after every single feed. And some research studies have done that, although obviously it's incredibly difficult to do that right from birth. It's quite an invasive thing to do to somebody when they've just given birth and getting to know their baby. Um, but the studies that have done that, there's a meta-analysis of those studies, which was released in 2012. 
Um, and that says that on day one, the normal whole 24 hour volume that a baby might drink from the breast is about 20 mils. Um, so if we think about it in mils per kilo per day, then that might be around seven mils per kilo per day for an average size baby. So obviously, if we compare that to our 60 mils per kilo per day um, kind of feeding plan volume that we think about, we just need to remind ourselves that that's not normal. That may be something that we apply because it's needed for some kind of sickness, but it's not a normal volume. Um, and then on day two, the 24 hour volume is about 100 mils. So maybe around 30 mils per kilo per day. And then that's when milk comes in on average 2.5 days is when milk tends to come in. So then by day three, you're up to maybe 90 mils per kilo per day. And day four and five, 120, 140 or 50 mils per kilo per day. So those are much more normal, much more of what we tend to think about. Um, so that's the first few days of life. And then uh, the milk supply will rise over the first one to two weeks quite sharply. And then it stabilizes in the average. And then uh, in the longer term studies, they've mainly used deuterium isotope. So um, uh, labeled but not radioactive <laughs> isotope that's given to the mother and the baby. And then you measure the output um, in the urine and then you can estimate how much the baby's taken. So um, you tend to get stability um, after kind of two, three weeks, about 750 mils per day. Um, but it can be really variable. And some babies who are thriving can actually only be drinking about 400 mils a day, and then others may be drinking a litre a day. Um, and that is fairly static, actually, over the next six months or so until complementary feeds are introduced, which also I don't think we're really aware of. Um, and particularly because on formula packets, they tend to say, this is the volume that a baby should drink and it increases with age. So we think that it must increase with age, but actually for breastfed babies, it, it tends not to. And because that volume tends to be stable, but the baby is growing, that means that per kilo, actually, the, the volume goes down. Um, so the peak is about 150 mils per kilo, but that's around two to three weeks. Um, and by six months, when you've started complementary feeds, um, it's probably more like 100 mils per kilo per day of breast milk. And then the breastfeeding toddler, who's also eating, uh, we don't know as much about, um, partly because in, in the UK and high-income high countries, that tends to be a rarer situation, uh, whereas it's a very biologically normal situation to have a breastfeeding toddler and child um, in most of the world. Um, so we don't know much about that, but there is a little bit of data that suggests that perhaps a, a toddler, so over a year, who's also eating, might be drinking about 200 mils a day of breast milk. And so and so at that point, is the... Um... Is, is, is the, what's the main benefit at that point? Is it just continuing with nutrition and with, with <laughs> immunity and, and that kind of thing, or? <laughs> Do you want me to take that one, Ilana? Yeah, I'll just say before you start that the anthropological data, so comparing humans to, uh, well, comparing our society to other human societies and to primates, would suggest that a normal, biologically normal age for weaning is probably between two and four years of age. So I'll just say that before Vicky tells you more. <laughs> So I think this is really interesting because we have this impression that sometime between six and 12 months, I think all these these benefits that we acknowledge of breast milk sort of just evaporate quite literally. And I think people think breast milk turns to water. And I've, I've heard really quite respected colleagues say things like, oh, there's no benefit. Um, and I think that's a shame because it reflects that they perhaps haven't looked at the data. So the first interesting thing is that immunological factors actually increase after the age of one year. Um, and that's a really interesting point to think about. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because your baby's off and now they're a toddler and they're sticking slugs and earth and everything else they can get their hands on into their mouth. And they're 
wandering around and meeting new other toddlers and getting more independent um, in their interactions. And so it would hugely make sense for that immune protection actually to upregulate after the age of one rather than downregulate. Um, we know that there's quite a lot of other stuff going on. So there's um, there's quite a lot of the, the caloric and the vitamin requirements as well, protein requirements are met by breast milk. Certainly anybody who's got practical experience of breastfeeding a toddler or an older child would tell you that it's an absolute godsend if they've got any kind of illness at all, because breast milk is much better tolerated um, for those babies who've got or toddlers who've got gastroenteritis. Um, and there's also a massive health impact for women with ongoing breastfeeding, which we're really not talking about enough. Um, a major impact on cardiovascular. There was a huge study in China um, looking at cardiovascular outcomes for women who breastfed. Um, I'll have to get the data for that, but essentially um, every additional six months of breastfeeding causes a substantial reduction in your risk of heart attack and stroke for mothers. I think it's quite a good thing to have your parents in good health. Um, so I think there are real physical benefits, but for mums and babies in breastfeeding longer term um, and we probably need to move away from that idea that it's something that magically stops being important once you get to six to 12 months. And I think people also actually think they're just supposed to stop so I think people often stop because they think that's what they're supposed to do they've kind of heard about a year as being something to aim for and often people are going back to work and they think that that must be incompatible um, so both of uh, Vicky and I are members of a Facebook group called Breastfeeding for Doctors and Vicky's one of the admins, um, which is a peer support group for breastfeeding support for doctors. Um, and I think part of that is just cultural. It's just people saying, look, I breastfeed and I work. And then pe other people say, oh, how does that work? How do you do night shifts if you're doing if you're still feeding at night? And it becomes obvious that actually breastfeeding is a very flexible thing that you can do in many, many different ways. But if people aren't aware of that, then they just assume, OK, yep, I breastfeed exclusively for six months and then I stop around a year. That's what's normal to people in their heads in the UK. But it doesn't have to be normal. It's 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 just a kind of cultural thing, isn't it? Yeah, I would agree with that. I find that's what I found that people expect. That's what they expect. Um, but yeah, it is very flexible. Um, so um, going back to um, normal breastfeeding, or um, how, so how would we kind of, if we saw um, a child, how would we um, assess if breastfeeding was going, you know, going well? So I think externally, you, you know if breastfeeding is going well um, in, in a number of ways. So firstly, you're watching a baby's weight gain, aren't you? And we, we know that there's a bit of postnatal weight loss, um, partly because any form of feeding other than having nutrients pumped directly into you from a placenta is a bit harder work, is, is a bit, um, it need, needs a bit of practice. So we expect a bit of weight loss. Um, and also we know that some birthing practices can artificially inflate baby's weight. So there's a lot of discussion around the impact of IV fluids given to mums. And we probably expect that to be around 10% maximum. Um, and your own individual workplace will have a policy about what to do, what is considered uh, worrying weight loss in babies um, in those early days. And then we're expecting to be back at birth weight, aren't we, between 14 to 21 days of life. Um, then we're looking at weighing and stooling. Um, and there's some some data about, you know, how much, what's in a nappy is a, is a good one. You're looking at that poo transitioning um, to that seedy breastfed baby poo from meconium. You're looking at 
a mum that isn't in pain. And this has come up a bit locally because um, we've, we've had some discussion about whether it's quote unquote okay for a baby to be gaining weight, but the mum still to be in pain. Um, and I don't know how blunt I'm allowed to be on this podcast. Can I make a blunt analogy? Yeah, of course you can. Is that... So I went round and spoke to one of our surgeons about this because we'd um, we'd stopped addressing tongue tie, a potential tongue tie in babies if they were gaining weight, um, but their mothers were in pain. And I, I'm afraid I said to him, um, if if something was sucking on your scrotum and causing that to bleed and ulcerate would you be okay with that and you know I've never said anything that had such a direct reaction from a surgical colleague before um so it's not okay for women to be in pain and there is this sort of myth that your nipples have to toughen up and you just have to get used to it and you just have to get through this magical two weeks or six weeks and it's always awful for everybody um and actually with good support and with really with knowing what good positioning and attachment looks like um nobody has to be in pain i think that's really important to know and i think we're a bit too used to as pediatricians that so many families have heard the latch looks good right i think there will probably be people listening to me say that and laughing um and we don't really know often as pediatricians what the difference is between breastfeeding and nipple feeding and we just think that because there's a nipple in the mouth that that must mean that that baby's latched appropriately um but what i want you to do if you're listening to this podcast right now is take your tongue and stick it um behind your own front teeth at the top and i want you just to run your tongue along the roof of your mouth um and what you'll find is that i can see you doing it tom <laughs> i'm doing it too <laughs> <laughs> so what you'll find is as you run your own tongue along the roof of your own mouth you go from this um, hard palate to the transition of the soft palate that's just before you start to gag on your own tongue so I hope nobody's <laughs> like Dude, I usually listen to podcasts when I'm out running so if you're, if you're currently doing this I really hope if you're running and doing this I really hope that you haven't fallen over but that that junction between the hard palate and the soft palate that is where a nipple needs to sit for adequate milk transfer and also to be comfortable for a breastfeeding parent. And we also have to remember that babies don't suck on a, on a nipple like they do on a straw or on a bottle. Um, so as far as we understand it, some of what happens with breastfeeding is that the tongue actually cups and holds the whole breast and it undulates as a form of peristalsis. The peristalsis actually starts at the tongue and the milk comes out that way. Um, so. I guess what I'm probably saying is assessing a latch is a real art, but just because you can see a nipple in a baby's mouth does not mean that the latch is okay and that box is ticked. If you don't know how to assess that latch and you've got a parent who's in pain, um, even if the baby's gaining weight, that person needs skilled support that's probably out with your remit. Yeah, amazing. I've seen some uh, beautiful videos of undulating tongues. It's quite fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if you want to see what re, what good attachment looks like, there's a brilliant website called Global Health Media that's got some beautiful positioning at the breast. Um, and the other person who's Suzanne Coulson is the person who first talked about biological nurturing and laid back feeding. If you look at her work, and again, Nancy Murbacher, M O H R B A C H E R, has a great uh, YouTube channel with some beautiful laid back positioning tips for families. So even if you can't quite 
help a family with that, you can signpost them to those resources to have a look at them while they're while they're waiting to be seen and assessed by somebody who perhaps has more knowledge than you do. Yeah, brilliant. So um, all of these, you know, we've mentioned quite a lot of resources and we'll put this um, on our website and, um, you know, sort of attach it with the um, podcast. So um, keep a lookout for that. Um, can I just jump in one more thing for that question? Of course you can. Go for it. Um, so I think firstly, I just wanted to support how important that positioning and attachment support is. So we've got a, an infant feeding survey from Scotland that was in 2017. That's kind of the most recent, very detailed infant feeding survey that we've got. Um, and of people who had stopped breastfeeding and didn't want to, uh, more than three quarters of them said that they had difficulty with attachment. Um, and then the other thing I think we need to know about is the way not to assess how, how well breastfeeding is going, because 86% of the women who had stopped said that they were concerned about their milk supply. And I think that there's a, a, an epidemic of perceived insufficient milk supply in high income countries, um, which is people making judgments about whether they've got enough milk because of the behavior of the baby, particularly in the early period. And so I think we really need to, need to be very much aware of the fact that babies can act in a way that makes us think we don't have enough milk, but that's actually irrelevant and that we need to rely on the kind of more solid things that Vicky was talking about. So a baby that wants to feed frequently, particularly in one period of the day, which tends to be the afternoon, the evening, the night, that's not something to say that you don't have enough milk. This kind of feeling that the baby's always hungry and they're never satisfied. Um, now, if that's absolutely 24-7, that could be a factor of concern, but to cluster feed and want to feed really frequently for many hours of the day, particularly in the evening and night, is a completely normal pattern. Um, and I think also there's a period where women's breasts will soften. So at first they, they might feel quite engorged and hard, and then there's a time where they'll soften and, and mums might not feel the milk being um, so much in their breast before a feed. And that's another flashpoint where people think, oh, I've lost my milk. Um, and the milk supply is gone. And again, that can be completely normal. And, you know, things like leaking as well. People are often really worried that if they're not leaking breast milk, that means they don't have enough. Actually, leaking is actually more to do with um, the the structure of the milk ducts and whether they're lax or whether they're quite constricted. So you can have a really great milk supply um, and not leak at all. Um, being able to express, I know, is one of Ilana's um, a real um, interest of, of expertise and areas of expertise and often women think and in fact are often told that if they can't express that they don't have enough milk um, but actually you know how your body responds to a pump is very different to how it responds to a baby um, and it's also important to say that not all pumps are equal um, we're not going to talk about um, about particular brands but there are real differences and there are also differences in technique um, and you need uh, pumping is as much of a skill I think for most women as breastfeeding is um, and you have to learn the techniques a little bit about getting your body to interface with a breast pump. Yeah they so, definitely don't have that undulating tongue that we were talking about today I don't think there's any that I've seen that have that uh, you know like a baby. Well some claim that they've got various modes that are more like a baby but the fact is that a, a pump is it's not the same mechanisms but it's also not the same experience um so you know when i'm supporting families who've got a sick baby which is a, a big part of my role and they're expressing while their baby's too sick to feed at the breast they're often in a place of high stress which i know alana is also supporting families with in the neonatal unit um, and it's very different sitting next to your sick baby in a hospital environment, plugging yourself into a machine, 
with the background noise of all the beeps, um, bright lights, stuff coming and going, perhaps you're not well rested or well fed. That whole experience is completely different to holding your snuggly little baby in your arms, um, looking at their face and having that physical contact. So I think it's not surprising that for a lot of women, expressing doesn't replicate how feeding's going. And I just wanted to say thank you to both Tom and Stacey for hosting that episode for us and to Ilana and Vicky for taking time out of their busy schedule to speak to us about breastfeeding. As I said at the beginning, this is the first of, in a two-part episode, so please join us again next week for the second half of this. Thank you for listening to Dragon Bites. Thank you.